Okay, so Ronnie, we're we're getting close to uh, I don't I've lost count of our our episodes, but we're we're getting closer and closer to you know like the the 100 episode mark. And what you didn't know is that I had a uh, special episode in mind uh, that I intended to be your soccer conversion episode. And so that's actually what today's all about. Many have tried before. I took a test online once to see um, who should be my team. Okay. I feel like it was Tottenham. That's a good choice. That's a better choice than many other choices, right, Brady? There's worse choices. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you're not, if you're, uh, if you're watching this episode, uh, if you're not watching this episode, if you're just listening to this episode, you can't see that, uh, our guest today, Brady Josephson's got on a, uh, a lovely Liverpool jacket and yeah, it's got his silly little Anfield sign in the back. And, uh, and I think as much as Brady and I have, have ever talked about any version of nonprofit marketing, we probably traded jabs about Tottenham and Liverpool more. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a little bit more fun uh, sometimes <laughs> to, to take things outside of our professional world and talk about our, our hobbies and interests. Our hobbies and interests. So, so today, just by hanging around us, Ronnie, I think that that's, we don't, we're not going to have to try very hard. It's going to just seep in and you're going to find yourself awake at 6.30 tomorrow morning at a pub and watching a game. It's just like, like osmosis of being near yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's it. right. That's it. Uh, so welcome to Group Thinkers and uh, the podcast from Arcady Group. Very delighted to have our guest on today, Brady Josephson. Brady, good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. Delighted is the way that I'll put it is because um, Brady, uh, you know, You've sat in, uh, you've sat in our shoes <laughs> previously. Uh, you have been a podcast host. You've been a podcast guest. You've been a speaker. You, uh, you have worn a lot of hats. And so I appreciate that about you. And I hope to get you to put on a couple different hats today, uh, as a part of our conversation. But just at the outset, man, just you're currently. A little more than a year in at Charity Water, serving as uh, as the lead for their marketing and growth team. And so, one, I want you to unpack what the heck that means, and then two, I want you to tell us how did you how did you end up there? Yeah, great. And you know, I think uh, I'll start with the the first one, and then kind of work back because it all hopefully makes sense. But leading marketing and growth at Charity Water is you know a bit of a a, a dream job. I started out in international developments. In right around the time where Charity Water came to be, you know, started in 2006. So for the most of my career, Charity Water has been there. And if you're in international development and marketing and fundraising with a focus on digital, you know a lot about, about Charity Water. And so my, my journey to Charity Water meandered through technology. I worked for a software company for a bit. I uh, worked for a, a tech-enabled donor advice fund in Canada. So really got to know the philanthropic space, not just the fundraising space, which is really interesting did some consulting and research, as you know, at Next After, and really got a, a good picture of what was going on at a high level view across the industry in the U.S. And even did some research in nine different countries around the world. And so a real kind of broad based application of knowledge of what's going on in digital. 
I worked in international development, startup nonprofit in Zambia, and then a microfinance organization working for the Canadian arm. So kind of that is really where my heart and, and passion is and has always been in some startups. I had my own agency. I helped start an agency uh, with a technology company and that technology company had a, a startup that ended up getting kind of merged into one. And so, you know, Charity Water is a bit of a blend of a lot of those things. It, it is an international development nonprofit, but it's very tech centric. It doesn't think and act a lot like a traditional nonprofit, which is partly why I wanted to work there and partly why I think it's really really interesting. And it's a, I think a blend of a lot of my knowledge and experience kind of combining to hopefully let me do a, a good job uh, for the organization. So that's kind of my career in a nutshell and maybe how it applies to Charity Water. You start off by saying it's a bit of a dream job. And, uh, and so there's the, we all had those experiences from like, let's say, I'm going to say 2008 to 2010, up until 2015, uh, where you would sit uh, with a client, you'd be talking about a strategy and somehow they would say something like, well, we just want to do what Charity Water's doing. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and at one point we actually had our equivalent of a swear jar that if Charity Water was reference, you had to put money <laughs> in. Yeah. And so, so, so talk to me, like, talk to me about your perception on the outside versus coming in. What are some things that you didn't know or didn't anticipate that you uh, thought would be the case and were spot on. Like, give us a little peek inside the 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 walls there. Yeah, I mean, the chair, the organization is very different today than it was back then, right? It's a hundred million dollar nonprofit that's been around for over fifteen years, and so it's it's a pretty different stage in its development than kind of early on. And so, I think a lot of my perception and maybe your perception of Charity Waters from maybe a different era. So there's some of that of just organizational yeah. life stage, but. You know, one of the things that um, was surprising, even though I thought it was going to be this way, is the level of competency and creativity. You know, you you see things and you hear things, and you're like, wow, there must be some really sharp, you know, amazing people. And then you get in, you're like, oh my gosh, these people are even smarter, better, cr more creative than I'd even imagined. You know, the talent level is is pretty pretty crazy. So you were kind of expecting that, and that was that was surprising. Um, the thing that you also maybe maybe knew that has blown me away is the level of care and empathy that the organization has internally for its people, but externally, the core fabric of the organization has such a love and connection and devotion to caring for donors. And it's a bit cliche, and we all say, "Oh, let's care about donors," but probably more so than any organization I've ever seen and been around. There is, it is like legit passion care. This is what we do. It doesn't matter what your wealth score is. It doesn't matter what your predicted LTV is. There's things that we do because it's right. And because we believe it's part of our mission and vision that that was kind of mind blowing, you know, to, to see that played out. And then the thing that was maybe surprising on the other side is maybe a lack of some data use or some more traditional performance marketing sophistication type things, because it's such a big program that is so effective, you maybe assume they're doing a lot of those things in maybe at a time, but at least when I, when I came in, I was surprising at how they weren't doing some of those things. And so it's an opportunity, but it's also interesting. Like if you do the big things, right, great brand, great care, great people, some of the smaller things like, oh, a little gift array suggestion on a 
donation page. It doesn't get a lot of, like, it's not going to move the needle for you. Yeah. So it was yeah. a real interesting reset for me of like the main things, the main things, the main thing. And I think Charity Water has, has done that so, so well that it covers over a multitude of little things that maybe aren't perfect. Yeah, that's, uh, man, that's so interesting and so well said because that uh, sometimes results can lend to cutting corners. Like that's a, that's not a nonprofit marketing indictment. That's life. I'm right. <laughs> you know, there are times to where if, if your team's winning and you're on a roll, then, uh, it might be really hard to be, you know, going hard at, at training, right? It's like those sort of little nuances yeah. that still play into, uh, the, the space that we work now. Um, so one of the things that, uh, caught mine and Ronnie's attention recently, uh, was your 2019, I think it might've been like a closing keynote essentially at, uh, at Neo, I think it was 2019 and you were kind of challenging, you know, rethinking what philanthropy and generosity in particular look like. And, and I know for years, the, um, a part of your pursuit has been, uh, redefining generosity and, and those pieces. And so, and, and, uh, I understand that you even referenced, uh, some of our research in your, uh, your time on stage last week at Neo. Can you share with us a little bit about what from our listen up research piqued your interest? Yeah. I think anytime there's a, a good piece of research done well, and there's a lot of research that's not done well. Um, so, you know, partnering with, with Josh McQueen is obviously a good step to do good research. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's imperative that we, we do read it and listen and check it out. Um, and more, more of my pursuit is on the qualitative side more than anything. I think the more that you work with quantitative or data, uh, you, you love it. It's great. There's a lot of opportunity. And then you kind of quickly realize, oh, there's a lot of limits and flaws to this. Or if you just take doing what data says to the end, it leads you to not a great place. So pursuing more of the qualitative research has been something that's been more on my plate in the last couple of years. And this year research would, would be in there as well of, uh, you know, layering in the, the commitment level or the, in, the engagement or the self-described connection level from low, medium, high was a yeah. really cool way to think about it. Because I think, you know, people like Adrian Sargent and whoever, there's a lot of research around commitment levels and loyalty levels and how imperative it is. But we as a sector have done very little about it. And so to see that show up in some research and try to provide some more um, insight into the differences, even between high commitment and low commitment or really engaged and low engaged is really interesting and something that we as a sector and me as a professional and probably us as an org um, need to make some some steps and some progress to really say, oh, it's one cool thing to read research and talk about it. But we're getting to the point where it's not that difficult to implement some of those things. And we really need to do that. So thinking about that, Brady, just exactly what you were mentioning there. How, I mean, I'll just kind of throw it out there. How do we do better? How do we build stronger relationships with donors and make them feel more connected to nonprofits? I mean, just big open question. How do we do it? I mean, it's, I don't know if I have the answer. You know, I think I'm, I'm a big culture person, you know, that, expression, culture, eat strategy for breakfast kind of thing, um, for sure. And I think culturally in our pursuit of data has come at the expense of listening to donors or really understanding donors to a degree. And data helps you understand donor behavior to a degree, but knowing what people say and what they want is huge. So the use of survey data intentionally with some sophistication, 
you know, it's not just, oh, yeah, we got a survey. Like, what are you asking? Why? What are you going to do with it? Just because you have a survey monkey login doesn't mean you know how to do a survey. And me as well. I don't know how to do surveys. I'm not an expert in surveys. We hired other people. We have a lot to learn. But I think that's the, the starting point. Because the other thing, too, is it takes a long time to accumulate enough zero party data or data that donors willingly give to you directly for it to be worth taking action on, right? Just saying, oh, we have 50 survey responses. Let's do this. That's risky. You know, you need to accumulate that data over a series of time. And then for us, we need to then model it to say, this person said this, here's what their behavior looks like. Now this insight is trustworthy or not. So the thing, the long answer short, we have to start and start today because it takes a while. If you're not collecting that information, if you're not exploring modeling off commitment levels, you're never going to end up at the right place. And it is not something where you can just, oh, we rented a list and we send the email out. Fine. This is a very different bucket of strategy. That is a long tail, long-term type of thing. And if you haven't started, you're just one day away from being able to actionalize that. So that's, that's the biggest thing is you have to understand the limits of data. And if you didn't understand that before, the last year or so has just been a big old slap in the face yeah. with the limits of data and data modeling and especially the paid social side. So the time is, is here. It was here a while ago, but it's definitely here. And you have to start thinking about your zero-party data, your survey data, and modeling things off of who people are opposed to just what they do. Yeah, that's uh, the... I think the the thing that I've observed from recent years is that there has been two camps, right? There's been a camp that will come in with anecdotal evidence. So not qualitative, anecdotal evidence of mm. we heard from someone or we've heard from our donors this. And then you start to press on it, especially if you're trying to defend a strategy of, okay, how many people said that to you? Under what context did they say that they, you know, are getting too many emails or that, you know, you're mailing them too much or, you know, sure, one person one time sent in a cinder block with the, with right. the PRE, you know, uh, duct tape to it. And so you have these anecdotal things, which can sometimes too often switch your strategy. And then on the other hand, I know for myself, I've even felt myself trying to defend a strategy and defend off anecdotal evidence. And I think it's frustrating that we're not better at, at serving and that we're not better at building that zero party data because it does fill in this gap that I think it's unique to the nonprofit space. When you're talking about relationships with brands, it's different than a relationship with nonprofits. Like the the there is a, a human connection between a donor and the cause that they're giving to that's different than where you shop for groceries or the type of car that you're going to purchase. Those sorts of consumer intent elements. And so, man, I'm totally tracking with you that the need to build that zero party data, the need to better listen, is now in your 15 months at Charity Water. What have you observed uh, in terms of how they have been or what have you done in terms of trying to spark this in uh, and handle this challenge now? Yeah, I think one of the, the things in Charity Water's success was just like an unbelievable intuitive sense. Um, you know, Scott in particular, uncanny sense of, of what will work and resonate or not, you know, and it, it is a little gut instinct, like a lot of founders who build a lot of visionary products, it's not always founded on, on data, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So there's been an element of that. 
And same thing with our creative team, just a real in-tuneness. I think what's interesting though, is as this core team has gotten older, right? People are starting to have families and not living in New York and our audience isn't as maybe homogenous as it used to be. That strategy gets harder and harder to do, or it only works with a segment of people. So what you intuitively know or understand, great, it can still resonate with a huge chunk of people, but there's a lot of people that don't fit in that bucket. And even thinking about things like, you know, TikTok or next channels, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's not my world. So that's where being more focused on some data and, and research is really important. And so I think we've kind of felt the pain to a degree of saying we still know this core and our core is amazing, but your core can only be so big. At some point, you have to start learning how to communicate and market to other types of groups in probably slightly different ways. And this is the challenge that most organizations and brands suffer from. I think we were really lucky when we kind of looked at our audience and indexed them. We basically index very similarly to America in terms of age profiles, interest profiles. We're, we're pretty linked to just general America, which means we can probably do more of just the same old, same old and just reach more of America and it will still work. Not a lot of organizations index that way. Not a lot of people have an accessible cause like clean water that most people can understand and get behind. We're not faith-based. We're politically agnostic. So we're pretty approachable in a lot of ways. So I think we've been able to put that off a little bit more than a lot of organizations who maybe tap out that core sooner, but we're still feeling some of that. So the need to develop some new you know, audiences based off some of our qualitative research and our quantitative research is really, you know, really, really key. And I think we're just getting better too at developing our, our culture of experimentation and testing. So even if it is anecdotal, it doesn't mean that we can't try something. It's just the margin of error off anecdotal evidence is massive. And then you get narrower when it's qualitative and narrower when it's a pool of qualitative and narrower when it's quantitative and narrower when it's a pool of quantitative. And, you know, there's a pyramid of trustworthiness in, I don't think that we should say, unless it's the top of the pyramid, we can't do anything because then you lose a lot of really good ideas. It's just understanding the risks and the margin of error of what's informing your idea. That's really, really critical. So, you know, someone says, Hey, I saw this from an organization great. We got nothing else in our testing queue. Let's run an experiment. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But that's a very different way to approach our growth strategy over the next two years. It's not, oh, someone has an idea. <laughs> Let's do it. You know, so depending on how important it is and the margin of error is, is really critical to keep in mind too. I uh, I love that. I, I love that one of the things that you had shared with us uh, previously when we had chatted was just the, golly, it's, it's the the maturation of Charity Water to now be investing more into direct marketing. And so, you know, obviously the success over time around the brand and the growth and the awareness and all of those things, which has been transformative. It's been, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that it's a new model, but you hit a certain point to where you got to start to build a, a foundation around direct marketing and grow that. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach in helping shape that direct marketing strategy and how this testing cue, this testing mindset comes into building that out? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of things that led to our success were really organic, right? People fundraising on our behalf. We had a lot of kind of notable support early on. Uh, our founders very charismatic and has a strong following. Like a lot of those things were were great, but they're also 
tough to replicate. And the big shift to developing the spring, our monthly giving program in 2016 was just that, you know, Scott has a quote saying starting from zero is untenable. And it was like, man, the calendar would flip over and the team would be like, oh my gosh, we have to do this all over again and hope people fundraise and hope that we do this. And it was like, we cannot scale and grow if we're in this position. And so that's where the monthly giving program in particular was invested in hard, aggressively and a huge focus. And then developing more of the traditional major gifts, mid-level gifts, those types of things. So at least on our side, so me and my team responsible for the consumer audience. So people who give $1,000 or less, essentially. And the spring or monthly giving is the biggest focus of, of what we do. And, you know, we have about 70,000 members and about $22 million in annual recurring revenue. So it's a fairly sizable program as it is. Mm -hmm. And what you see with larger programs or with volume is you don't grow at the same rate. You can't just like, oh, 100% growth. You're like it tails off. And even to the point where you can even shrink or flatline when your growth strategy, which was ours, uh, primarily paid social, paid digital media heavy. Once you start running into the issues that we ran into, it, it really curbs your growth. So little background and context. So what we're trying to do now is say, not only what can get us back on a growth trajectory, but one of the things I love about Scott and this organization is saying, we are trying to end the water crisis. We're not just trying to grow 5% year over year, that kind of thing. It's not this incremental approach. It's trying to say, how can we 3X this program in a few years? How can we 5X as an organization in a few like? And that shifts the type of thinking as opposed to like, oh, we got to do whatever we can to just make sure we hit our targets this year, which is a tough struggle, but say, what do we need to do today so we have the chance to 2X, 3X, 4X our program three, four, five years from now? And that type of mindset is, is really rare in our space. You know, I've been doing a lot of learning from like venture capital and it's unfortunate that we don't have those types of markets to tap into that basically say, we'll give you big old pot of money and we'll give you three years and you got to meet some right. milestones, but we don't care about performance until year three. Right. And as much as we can, we're trying to adopt more of that mindset. And so, you know, we can prove a, an idea like uh, e newsletter sponsorship, for example. We've done that a few times. It seems to perform well. The challenge is 40 monthly donors here, 40 monthly donors there. We need a bunch of those for us to actually grow the program and to source them, execute them, the admin just goes up and up and up and up and we can't sustain it. So it's highly efficient, very little scale. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this narrow target of trading off efficiency and, and scale and it depends for every organization where you're at. And so for us, we need some very highly scalable strategies, which moves us into things like TV because there is unlimited scale to a degree, Yeah, yeah. but trade off on efficiency. So we're standing up all these little pilots where we're making these little bets to see, is this an opportunity? Is this an opportunity? You know, like gentle pushes on the door to say, will this door open if we push harder? And then at some point you go, we can't make 12 little bets. We got to make a couple really big bets and commit to them over a series of time. Because where we are at in the, in the growth stage, again, we're trying to 2X, 3X a program in a few years, not just, you know, grow 5%. So very different mindset, very different stage. But I think that mindset should be more applicable to more nonprofits, or I wish it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see uh, a lot right now, whether or not it was uh, in your previous time at a couple of different agencies um, that, you know, a lot of the mindset is about incremental growth annually, not 3X in three to five years. And not 
an end goal of end game of put ourselves out of business because we've solved the water crisis. And so right, I, right. I, love an, uh, I love that aspirational impact. And I got to think that that plays into the culture that you referenced earlier with respect to care for the donors because you're asking for them to be invested in the cause. So as you think about these, uh, these bets, these small bets and these big bets, how is Connect for me listening and surveying or understanding or building affinity data? Connect for me that part into the, the bets that you're making. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a difference of uh, the acquisition and the retention side. And so, you know, even going back to the first question around what does marketing and growth mean? We were intentional. I was intentional in the discovery or hiring process, and we've been intentional about making it marketing and growth. And growth is, the difference is being is growth roles have more responsibilities across the whole life cycle of a donor or full funnel. Whereas a lot of marketing traditionally is like top of funnel or one part of it. And then you kind of hand it off to another team. It's like, now it's your job to keep them and grow them. And I think that's very problematic. And so we said, if we're going to build a monthly giving program, we should use more growth models that, you know, subscription, high volume subscription products have. And I want, we want as a team to be responsible for the acquisition, the retention, the monetization, full cycle. So how that relates on the acquisition side, um, we don't, the listening is somewhat important because you can piece in some attribution data. So people maybe say, oh, I heard about you on TV, but they show up from a paid ad, you know, so it helps fill some of that gap of saying, wow, a ton of people say they heard Scott speak or saw, saw us on TV and it never shows up in our attribution models or the end, you know, last click kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of important. And then you can model a little bit off off that. I think where the listening becomes more important is on the messaging and positioning of the offer that you go out with, right? If we know that most people connect with the vision to end the water crisis or the impact on women and girls or those types of things, then, then that can shape maybe how we position ourselves when we go out to new audiences, if we know that's what resonates most to our core audience. But honestly, a lot of it is kind of like now that you're in the community, what can we do to best serve you? Do you want to hear less? Do you want to hear more? What type of content do you want? You know, those types of things. So I think that's where a little bit more of the, the value lies. And those two are different sides of the same coin. You know, if you acquire a bunch of people and then they all churn out, what's the point? You just wasted a bunch of money. So yeah. I think, you know, it's not like, oh, this is acquisition information. This is retention information. Those two things are linked inextricably. Yeah. So it plays a role in, in each, but it probably leans a little bit more on the retention side. Ronnie, I know, I know you had a, a a thought there. I could see it it jumping forward, but just I, I I have to jump in and say that you know it's interesting when you think about large organization as you mentioned, uh, but then you take that same place and you put it down to a small organization. Maybe it's a, a local food bank, and one of the challenges that they found themselves in in the last couple of years is just by the nature of what we've all walked through, they have. It, they have acquired a ton of new donors mm -hmm. and already short-staffed pre-pandemic. And now they're wearing so many hats in a time of increased program need that it's hard for them to even set aside the time to figure out the strategies to say, hey, uh, how can we get you, you know, new donor to us more involved in the organization? So that's where you are seeing some organizations really struggle with that retention is because they've had to pick and choose 
where to apply their own resources, including their own time. And sometimes that just results in spilling off of, of donors that you just acquired, which is highly unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, there's some donors that they just purchased. They're not committed. <laughs> they sure. don't, right? Local food bank you need, boom. Give You provide water, saw your ad, boom. That's yeah. it. Like we can't fool ourselves that like everyone wants this deep relationship. And yeah. like, I think sometimes we overdo it almost of like, we got to know all the donors. And there's a ton of donors who just like, oh, I heard about you. I want to do good. You had me in the moment I gave and they will never give to you again. You know, there's a huge chunk of retention that is impossible to retain. Yeah. Uh, like, and so what, going back to like retention models or high commitment, low commitment or your research, what we need to do a better job modeling is saying, this person we absolutely can and should retain, or this person will retain if we do nothing, or this person is at risk of never coming back again, and then changing the mix or the strategy based off those things as soon as we can, yeah. and not saying like everyone is, the, you know, everyone's the same kind of thing. So. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that that's actually, that's a part of the formative idea behind it is <laughs> it was, you know, Ronnie and I and a couple of other team members sitting around saying like, what, this whole retention crisis what do you make of that? And and actually, yeah. to your point, what what do donors think? Because they don't think they're in a retention crisis, you know. <laughs> it's that you know a cause comes in and out of their life, maybe, or maybe it's come into their life and it's staying. It's important to them. Super interesting, yeah. Ronnie. I knew you were going to jump in with something. Yeah, I mean, like, I, like I was curious about the same kind of thing you asked. Is like the, this scale of you know, there's limited amount of resources at a nonprofit organization, and how do you how do you choose what to focus on? Which Brady, you 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 described it very well. So another thing that I'm kind of thinking about is, um, which you've described about Charity Water, and you know, as a, as an organization grows, it's kind of like you know a ship. You know, it, as you're you're the small little craft in the water, you can turn and maneuver very quickly, and then you become this big cruise ship, and all of a sudden you you can't make these big changes with limited resources and having to apply those resources as, as a larger organization in a way that, you know, can't hurt you. How do you go about taking these risks and trying these new things in a way that doesn't really hurt you and, you know, impact your revenue? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we're going through. So I can only share what we're, what we're trying to do. It, it takes a while for it to, to kind of bear fruit. But I know, um, I think one of the things is to just not buy into the narrative that because you're, you're big and have, scale that you are now a big cumbersome ship. There's some realities, but I think you can you can fight against it and how you structure your team. So for us, for example, we've structured a cross-functional team across our creative team and our product team to fit under marketing and growth, where there's a few direct people on the team and then a lot of people from other teams. And we try to operate on a, on a sprint cycle. And it's a bit of a work in, in progress, but instead of saying, oh, here's what we're going to do three months from now or six months from now, we kind of have a roadmap high level, but it's really, what are we going to do in the next two weeks? What's the most important thing? We bring it into the queue. We try to execute all of it. And then we kind of, what's going on in the next two weeks. And so that's a way to kind of combat getting too caught up in, you know, end of years, you know, four months from now, it's great. But also what can we do today and not get too hung up on the big thing that's coming on the horizon. And I think the bigger you get, you have the temptation and it's like, okay, giving Tuesday end of year and you start walking it back and now you're planning for end of year, a year in advance because you have to and print timelines and whatever. And what gets lost in the middle is all the other stuff that you should be doing in the meantime. 
So I think how we do work, uh, the, the cultural side of things, you know, there's a concept of charity work called safe to try that was in existence long before I ever got there. And it's just saying, look, if you want to take a risk, let's do some quick analysis and do the risk trade-off. And if the risk is low and great, people will kind of give you thumbs up, say, I think it's safe to try. And so keeping those things in the the culture, and I know, um, you know, Scott is, is trying to imbue within all of us his sense of risk-taking. And it's one thing for your founder to take a bunch of risk. It's another thing to be kind of a cog in the wheel saying, can I also take risk? But when you look at really innovative organizations or high experimentation organizations, that cultural side of things get pushed all the way down. So people all feel this sense of, I can do things. I have autonomy. I can run experiments. We're, we're not afraid to fail. And so it's, it's, again, it goes back to this real cultural thing because without it, it ends up being the only person who can take a risk is the person at the top. And then the whole thing slows down. People feel like they can't ideate. Oh, we won't be able to do it anyways. You know, all those squelching things. And honestly, that's why I left the nonprofit space at first. I was leading marketing at an organization I loved. And it was just like, I could not do anything that I thought was cool or innovative. And I probably could. I mean, I was relatively young, but I felt like nothing I wanted to do was, was ever going to see the light of day. And that's what crushes people more than salary and comp and is like, I can't do cool work that I care about that my skill set can do. And I feel like that's, that's so sad, <laughs> you know, like maybe we can't compete on, on comp and those things, but we should absolutely be able to compete on autonomy and risk and freedom and, you know, those kind of things. But we often, but the opposite uh, of that. And the impact, right? Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of folks that end up here, here being the nonprofit marketing space, whether or not you're on the nonprofit side or on the agency side, because uh, they want to see impact and they're leaning into their purpose. And I love the idea of uh, empowering people to lean into that purpose in a way that, that really, that really makes a difference. That's, that's cool stuff, man. So, okay. So just, just in terms of, of landing the plane, what I think is so interesting is the relational aspect of, of what we heard in our listen up study, which again is available at rkdgroup.com slash listen up, that relational aspect uh, of trying to better understand what makes for a strong or a weak relationship, how do weak relationship donors versus strong, how do they relate back to the nonprofit? Um, something that you said there, Brady, I really gravitate towards, and that's your reference of the use of a sprint cycle. And when you're thinking about building relationships, you're you're probably in some ways thinking about like a high level roadmap of six to 12 months, but right. more often than not, it's like, hey, what can I do today, right? Or this week, I need to check in on this person or what? So there is something that's uh, about the culture of how we apply performance marketing, direct marketing, and not getting lost up in those, those high level long-term decisions versus thinking in the now and being nimble and being open to data right now to, uh, to make decisions. And man, that is hard for us in a control-based long lead time industry. Yeah, it's, it's way hard. I'm, but, you know, honestly, that's one of the things I, I was interested in. You know, when you consult, it's hard to get in there, like get in the guts and that's where so much of the opportunity lies, you know, on the culture side and what, like you can say things all day long as a consultant and you can only get in there so much, but 
being internally, it's kind of like, well, there's n- it's no one's responsibility other than mine for some of these things. And it's not necessarily tactical. It's more, you know, on the, on the cultural side, which I think is really, really interesting. You know, uh, Courtney Gaines from Next After did a, a good talk at, at the Nonprofit Innovation Optimization Summit last week. And a lot of it was just that human element of like checking in on people. You know, there's a hurricane going on in Florida. Who are your donors that might be in that zip code area? And just send a note and be like, hey, we're just thinking about you. You know, it's like those little touch points that maybe seem cheesy and donors will say, oh, I don't want that. But then you do it and it's really powerful for some folks. You know, it's it's combining some of that with also some of the strategy of saying, we basically have 30 days for the most part to win over a new donor. Mm. Generally speaking, like that's essentially it. You have A, the acquisition is normally the biggest indicator of whether someone will stay is how you acquire them more than anything. And then you have a very, very narrow window to ship them. And once that window is closed, there's actually, yes, there's things you can do, but reality, there's not a ton you can do of significance outside of maybe year, year end and a seasonal campaign. You know, right. And blending these two things, which say we should always care about donors, even if we're like the likelihood of them giving now is so small, doesn't mean you don't care about them. Yeah. While also knowing the statistics in the data of saying we got to win this battle real quick. You know, it's, yeah. it's blending those two things that's most critical. So interesting. Good stuff, man. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with us. I'm I'm really certain by now that Ronnie has found uh, a team. He can't juice Tottenham, can't juice Liverpool, but I think just by the end of this conversation, you know, that he's probably lined up. And by the way, we both agree that you can't choose Chelsea, Man City, Man United, or Arsenal. Like you got to go outside of that group. I was going to disappoint you all by, by choosing Manchester United. I figured that was probably the worst choice, right? No, it's fine. No, like the Yankees. Okay. <laughs> I mean, sure. if you if you want to go to hell, you know you can. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if you can say that on a, on this podcast. I don't know where it is. I'm just joking. Man, Manchester United. Oh, is that, I mean, that's you were referencing the Red Devils. It's the Red Devils. Correct. There you go. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, like honestly, right now it would be you know uh, you could choose Wrexham, you know, and and uh, if you're if you watch the great series, by the way, I'm loving. Yeah. It. Yeah. 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 It's good stuff. So. Brady, if uh, if someone wants to g- dig in with you further, talk about either some of the the tests that y'all are running, understand how you're using a sprint cycle internally, figure out why you have such a beef with Man United or why you have such an affinity for Liverpool. Where where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Personally, I have Twitter and LinkedIn, probably. Um, it's just at Brady Josephson or, or slash Brady Josephson. And then honestly, I think I know a lot of people do this, but check out charitywater.org, sign up for email. I mean, if you want to make a monthly donation, I'm not opposed to it, but just check out the the infrastructure. Don't necessarily just copy things blindly because some of the stuff isn't working, but, you know, check it out because I do think it's always good, you know, to see what other organizations are doing. And we got a lot of room to improve, but by and large, I think we do a lot of things, you know, pretty right so if you want to see it for yourself i think that's always a great way to do some personal research right on appreciate that man thanks so much for spending time with us today and uh and for the listening audience the viewing audience just a reminder that uh the the full research study is available on rkdgroup.com uh you can check out all the other episodes of the podcast and uh and see other content that we put out so appreciate it thanks so much for checking out this episode we'll see you down the road 
Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but it's the marketing efforts behind Group Thinkers. Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers. 